Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Memorial Day weekend, which means we'll pause this week to share some segments from previous shows that should be interesting now. First up, Charles Ray. He and I talked last November when he was showing two new works at Matthew Mark's gallery in Los Angeles. Bailed Truck, a sculpture of a truck that has been crushed into a rectangular block junkyard style, and Mime, a sculpture of a reclining male figure on a cot. A survey of sculpture Ray has made since 1997 is on view at the Art Institute of Chicago through October 4th. The Art Institute co-organized the show with the Kunstmuseum Basel. It was curated by James Rondeau and Bernhard Mendes Berge. Then we'll hear from critic and author Ben Davis. He'll be giving a keynote address at an upcoming Walker Art Center conference titled Superscript, Arts Journalism and Criticism in a Digital Age. The conference runs from May 28th to May 30th in Minneapolis and can be followed online at walkerart.org superscript. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. Davis and I spoke in August of 2013 when he had just published the book 9.5 Theses on Art in Class, which looked at questions of class, labor, and politics in the contemporary art scene. It was published by Haymarket Books and is still available in both paperback and on Kindle. Charles Ray is first up after the break. Fun news. The Modern Art Notes podcast is going back on the road. Please join Philida Barlow and me at the Nasher Sculpture Center on Saturday, May 30th at 2 p.m. Among other things, we'll be talking about a major new exhibition of her work curated by the Nasher's Jed Morse. It will include the first museum commissions Barlow has taken on since her Duveen commission at the Tate Britain last year. Barlow's exhibition at the Nasher opens on the day of our taping, May 30th, and will remain on view through August 30th. Philida Barlow is coming back to the Man Podcast at the Nasher. Hope to see you there. Hammer Museum presents the West Coast debut of Provocations, the architecture and design of Heatherwick Studio. British designer Thomas Heatherwick and his London-based studio are known for unique design concepts, ranging from the 2012 Summer Olympics cauldron to the redesign of London's double-decker bus. Provocations includes prototypes, large-scale models, and objects that reveal the astonishing range of the studio's practice. On view now, visit hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Charles Ray, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Let's start with the new sculpture, Bailed Truck, which is on view here at Matthew Marks in Los Angeles. I think the simplest place to start is why a truck? I don't really know why a truck. When the idea was kicking around in my head, it was a much different sculpture at first. But, you know, one of the things, you know, often when I work, it begins in a, I mean, the sculpture, when it, by the time it's finished, it's much different than when it began. It's going in different places. But one of the things that, that you know, got me interested in proceeding with this project was I have a... Uh, lifetime guilt over losing my first truck. It was my first set of wheels, and it was an old Chevy. And I was going to college at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. And one night I took it out for a drive at night, and one thing led to another, and I thought I was being chased by UFOs. And I was in a swamp and uh, down dirt roads and petrified, and I drove under some extremely loudly buzzing power lines, and my truck just coasted to a stop, absolutely dead. And uh, 
I got out of the truck and thought, okay, well, I'll have to walk out of the swamp. Then I started seeing lights. And then I started uh, sensing lights coming towards me. And uh, then there were just lights all over the place. And I fled. And it took me about four hours to get out of the swamp and then hitchhike back to Iowa City. And then I found some friends to try to go back to help me retrieve my truck. And on the radio on the way back, there was a report of strange lights being seen over Iowa that night. We were all told not to worry. It was a weather balloon that had taken off from Indianapolis a couple of days earlier. Well, I thought, geez, you know, the swamp gas is really restless tonight because uh, I was seeing all kinds of things. But as time passed, I realized I, you know, wasn't seeing UFOs. I was, you know, seeing something else that I didn't understand. And uh, I never did get my truck back. And that's where the guilt came in. And I slowly realized that, you know, the way memory works is you think you're assembling events from the past into memories. And in reality, I think you're carving events of the present into your memories. And uh, so this truck you know, when you first walk in the room, it's a bale truck, and it's compressed, and it's tight, and, you know, it's, you feel the great pressures squeezing it together, and the broken tires and windows, and it's shut, and you feel all that, and you think, you know, you're looking at a bale truck stripped of all its color, and you get closer, and slowly, you know, as you investigate the surface, and with time, you actually see it's not a compressed assembled object at all, but it's a carved object. It's carved from a block of stainless steel by uh, big milling machines. So I don't know if that helps, but that's the beginning of why a truck. So the most interesting part of that to me is that it's back in Iowa. Because when I saw a bailed truck here for the first time, the first thing I thought of is there are kind of a bunch of little Anthony Caro sculptures that are kind of part of of, of, of your sculpture and you've talked about Anthony Caro a lot in the past and your one of your teachers at Iowa Roland Brenner studied under under Caro were you particularly thinking about Caro while working on this piece are you conscious of there being kind of a couple of little Caro like forms attached to to bailed truck not particularly you know sometimes I think I've made too much to the general public about my relationship to to Caro, which is extremely strong. You know, I have a strong relationship to Warhol as well. Warhol changed a lot of things, and I'm part of that change. So you you can be affected by the change without being directly conscious of it constantly. I'm just part of what shifted. So specifically, like Caro-esque moments inside the bale truck are automatic. You know, what, what I did is I, I simply crushed the truck and then retrieved it and scanned it and then worked for a few years with mach- the, the, the scanning files and turned the whole thing into virtual clay. And uh, it was a long process because there was a lot of information in the files, uh, much of it missing because the scanners can't get underneath shadows and, and, and uh, just underhangs, you know, et cetera, and, and 
deep, deep into uh, crevices and uh, you know areas like that. So you're left with you know how are you going to handle it? Rebuild them, leave them blank, fill them in, all of the above. My involvement was maybe more with the surface of it than with the relationship of parts, like in a Caro. So it, you know, I, it, it wasn't Caro-esque, so to speak, for me. The, the, the press release for, for the show rather quickly points out, in like the second or third paragraph, that bailed truck is made out of stainless steel and it weighs 12 tons. So just to give people who haven't seen the image yet, or the image with some scale yet. The, the, the sculpture is about 10 feet long by about 4 feet deep and about 3 feet tall. So weight has been, the weight of a sculpture has been a big deal for you for a long time, and you've talked about it in a zillion Q&As. So I don't want to kind of talk about it too directly, but I'm interested in the idea of, of scale and how you think about scale. Cause, so when we talk about scale of a painting or a print, you know, we talk about its height and its width. So when you think about the scale of a sculpture, do you think in weight rather than in dimensions? So is that what weight is for you, a part of scale? Yes and no. The scale, you know, if you ask me to, you know, specifically the scale of bale truck is, is, is life-size, you know, because I, I didn't change or alter the scale. So I see it as life-size. I didn't pump it up or make it. Uh, smaller. Sometimes if you're making a figurative sculpture, to make it appear life-size, you have to increase the size a little bit, 3 to 4 percent, or the figure feels diminished. And that's because we have what's known as we carry uh, experiential space. Um, we're constantly moving and shifting and, you know, moving our arms and, you know, our butt on the chair and standing around and uh, shifting, and that increases the uh, both the physical and the social space that we occupy. So, if you take someone at their exact physical scale and make a sculpture of them, they appear smaller than they really are because then they're not taking up that experiential space. But you know, the, the reason I mean, the reason bale truck is solid is simply because I wanted to carve it rather than assemble it. I, th- I thought that was my initial intuition with, with the sculpture. So I guess in a roundabout way, I think both weight uh, and time are a kind of scale, uh, a temporal scale. So you mentioned Warhol a moment ago, and, and you're pretty unshy in general about using images or or things that might be considered the province of or, or closely affiliated with other artists. And so in the case of Bailed Truck, you know, not only is kind of there this, this Warhol allusion to, to kind of the, the end of the automobile, a particular automobile, but there's, there's a reference to your own 1997 unpainted sculpture, which is at the Walker Art Center, and we'll have images of it on manpodcast.com. Was there a sense of of your engagement with that previous work, your own previous work, as you were doing Bailed Truck, or is there no relationship between the 97 piece and this piece? You know, it's Bailed Truck originally began, when it began, there was perhaps more of a relationship. But it's an obvious relationship, because initially it wasn't a Bailed Truck. It was a truck, 
and it was called, I, you know, it had a working title called Ancient Truck or Rusty Old Truck, and it was a truck I was going to make out of plate steel in a scrap steel, park it on the streets. So it also had a relationship to the fire truck. But the fact that it was a sculpture related to or made from a vehicle is where the relationship begins and ends. That can seem initially, you know, really strong, like, oh, my God, he's making another vehicle again. But the reasons I went there are, are quite different. You know, the, you know, the, the, the investigation with um, unpainted sculpture, my head and mind were really somewhere else than where it was when I began the Bale Truck Project. I don't believe in ghosts, but, you know, if you could prove or disprove the existence of ghosts, we would lose a beautiful thought experiment, human thought experiment, because ghosts aren't really about the dead, they're about the living in a way, you know. I was thinking at the time, would a ghost be interested, if there were ghosts, in haunting the physical structure of a place, the, the very atoms of a house or of a location, or if there was like a death wreck, would, would the ghost need the substance you know the atomic substance of the of the of the car that it, it it he or she died in or would the topology be enough would the ghost follow the topology and that's where it began so it began with searching for a death wreck that i felt a uh, ghostly presence in you know that i felt the the, the person who died in and that quickly changed as I was searching for a wreck to searching for a particular wreck. I thought I was looking for one that had a presence in it. Well, lots felt that they had a presence, but they just simply weren't interesting to me sculpturally. Then I realized I was looking for a kind of platonic death wreck, a platonic wreck, you know, one that was perfect in how it was wrecked, you know, and, and transcended my own taste about that. It had all the qualities of a death wreck, the platonic qualities. And then searching for that was very difficult because very quickly those qualities are altered. Uh, as soon as they're towed away, you know, people are you know, taking radiators out, radios out, um, tires off, that, you know, things that still work in the scrapyard, or just simply piling them up on the truck that's taking them to the scrapyard. So then I had to find where they were still under investigation and altered as little as possible. So doing these things, the whole, the, you, know, the, you know, right there, the project is shifting out of my critical control in, in a certain, or out of my narrative control in, in a way, from my initial interest or reason, it starts to shift, shift away. It, it, as the years went by that I was working on that, it continued to continued to shift. And one day it shifted away from a depiction of the death wreck to, you know, and from an interest in the ghost and, you know, the horrific narrative quality of the wreck to a structure that was much more about perfection. You know, it was about, it's, it's in, in the struggle to get it done right, it became less about death than about perfection. You mentioned surface earlier in the context of bailed truck. Bailed truck and unpainted sculpture have totally different surfaces, but they're both kind of perfect surfaces. I guess how would you describe the difference between 
I don't know if tactile is quite, quite the right word because, I mean, I haven't touched either one of them, but, but kind of that visual tactility, how the two pieces are different and, and, and if there are ways in which you think the surfaces are, are similar or the same. I, I think the surfaces are really different. Unpainted sculpture, I'll see if I can give the listeners a visualization of some aspects because we're not standing in front of it. But the way I made that is I acquired the wreck, had it delivered to my house, and converted my garage and built outbuildings into a kind of uh, mold-making studio and had this car in my driveway and slowly took molds off of it and then threw out the hard parts, took silicone molds. Sounds easy enough. Now imagine a death wreck all twisted metal or even a car with its metal and its undercuts and uh, you know, imagine the radiator get grill. You try to take a mold of that, okay, easy enough. Let's coat it with silicon and then silicon is a soft rubbery material that your final material is going to be made into. Just like the dentist takes a silicon mold of your teeth to make a crown. You also take a mother mold, so you pour the silicon on, brush it on, then you take a plaster mother mold to make the silicon rigid. If you have a lot of undercuts, you can't get the silicon out. It flows in and around and gets locked in and behind everything. What we do is we fill with clay. So, you know, the radiator grill, you would fill in all the spots below the surface. Take the silicone mold, remove the part, then go one layer further. And, you know, so everywhere where the silicone would fold in on itself and lock, you do that in the next mold. You go back in and back in and back in. I was trying to do a perfect reproduction of this death rector in my thought experiment to see if the ghost would follow. So imagine the tail light. The tail light is broken from the wreck. So you have to fill all inside the tail light with clay. Then you do the outer surface of the lamp. Right? When you get that back as fiberglass, you take a Dremel tool and what was clayed, the hole, you Dremel out. And then you have the broken plastic part. Then you've done the inside of the lamp as a second mold. Then you've done the light bulb as a third mold. Then you've done the fender that this whole unit is on as another mold. Well, the day came where I was all assembling all of this. And I was so excited because I was going to see this kind of realism of the broken taillight inside the lamp, the bulb, and I set it all up and it was, you know, still in raw fiberglass. And, you know, I stepped back to voila, look at it, and I, my just heart sunk. It was horrible. I hated it. I didn't like it. It was a rendition of the car. I didn't know what was wrong. And, you know, I depressingly thought about it for a while, and I realized after a few days that I missed the form. I missed the clay, the filler. I missed this beautiful surface running throughout the car. And at that moment of looking at this perfectly realistic taillight, inside and outside, all the way into the bulb, the whole project shifted away from duplicating the car to the form that I was dealing with. Fiberglass is also thicker than tin. 
which sheet metal. So when we went to put the car together in its fiberglass plastic parts, it was thicker. So I had that problem. How do you join these parts together? They no longer fit. Well, you can think of it like how does a filmmaker join his movie together? So let's say you have a, a big shootout and the next scene you have a kissing scene. You know, you can't get the gunshots to go with the kiss. You know, so what do you do? You know, you can't work it out. You think and think. You, you dissolve the black. And then you come up from the gunshots to the kissing and it all magically flows together. So I learned to do that in unpainted sculpture where parts wouldn't go together. I would dissolve the bondo, use filler. And this again made this kind of almost drapery, almost classical quality out of it. You know, originally the idea too was duplicating the car so the whole thing was going to be painted realistically. Well, I primed it and started thinking about painting it trompe l'oeil and the primer dealt with this new involvement with the form so beautifully that I just left it primer colored and then I painted, titled it Unpainted Sculpture so at least you would think I was thinking about color even if I didn't use color. Yeah, the color of it is really great in its absence. You get this there's this sameness to the color of the whole thing no matter what kind of little nooks and crannies there are it seems to the eye fills it in you know the other artist i think of when i when i look at at bailed truck is john chamberlain and a couple years ago so while you were working on bailed truck you wrote an essay for the catalog of the guggenheim's chamberlain retrospective i think the show was up in 2012 but you may have written the essay well before that because I think the show was delayed a little bit. Did working on that essay and thinking about Chamberlain at the time you were working on Bailed Truck impact the sculpture? I think I was already involved in Bailed Truck. And, you know, some people ask me to, uh, they, they have brought up uh, Cesar. They go, you know, but Cesar, 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 must have been interested in him to do this Bailed Crush Truck thing. And, of course, Chamberlain. You know... The beauty of, of Chamberlain and the car is they're also, they're, they're, they're formally beautiful sculptures. And I think Donald Judd wrote about them that way much, you know, really beautifully and really influenced my thinking, not just on Chamberlain, but in sculpture in general, you know, in terms of their wholeness. My approach to Bailed Truck, my interest in Bailed Truck was almost more pop, although you could say there is a real popness to Chamberlain as well and it's it, you know it's in the vernacular it's in the culture uh, people say oh you know someone who has a car that's really smashed up they'll say that's a rolling John Chamberlain or you know you know some comments as that you know so I, w I was working with this sort of instant recognition of it and it as an assembled object and then the slow my involvement was that it was carved that you would slowly realize that it was you know made in a different way. It had a different surface. It was from, if you will, and this is why I brought up the UFOs at the beginning, it was like a, kind of like a truck from a different planet in a way. It's something different. I'm interested in how long you can look at it, how long you can move. And same with, and there it's related to unpainted sculpture, how long your involvement can be with it, where your mind can go as you kind of go in and investigate its topology and its form. So you used the word topology again, and I want to read a couple sentences from that Chamberlain essay, because 
because to me it sounds like they apply pretty closely to bailed truck. You wrote the early work, and we're talking about you're talking about the early work of Chamberlain had topology rather than surface, compression rather than form. The sculptures had shifted from being made of cars to being made from cars, which kind of sounds like something that stuck with you. Well, in that passage, I think I was being critical of, of Chamberlain's work and, 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 and that it became, you know, he fell in love with his material in, in a way. And But, you know, later in the essay, too, I kind of revised that in terms of the painted surfaces he was putting on it. But, you know, I mean, one could bring up, I forget the guy's name, the Bumper King. Of uh, He was, like, teaching at Cornell. I forget his name, but we used to call him the Bumper King. He only made sculptures out of chrome bumpers. Can't remember his can't remember his name, but, you know, you know the, the shininess of Bale Truck or, or whatnot. But th- those are more, uh, for me, found objects, givens, you know, the, the relationship both to Chamberlain and, uh, you know, these, these other references. So perhaps, you know, Bale Truck has an obvious relationship to Chamberlain, but maybe not a philosophical relationship to him. My guest is Charles Ray. We'll be right back after a break. Now on view at the Dallas Museum of Art, Between Action and the Unknown, the art of Kazuo Shiraga and Sadamasa Motonaga. The first major U.S. exhibition to explore side-by-side the work of these avant-garde Japanese artists, this groundbreaking show explores the transformative careers of both artists, from early work to their engagement with the Gutai Art Association and beyond. On view through July 15, 2015. Find more information at dma.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dear Nemesis, Nicole Eisenman, 1993-2013, on view at its La Jolla location from May 9th through September 6th. For 20 years, Nicole Eisenman has developed a creative vision that combines high and low culture with virtuosic skill. Using centuries-old art-making conventions and a multitude of art historic influences with contemporary subject matter, she has created depictions of community, identity, and sexuality. Her incisive socio-political critique operates through the quotidian and the absurd in ways that are both formally playful and visually breathtaking. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And now back to my conversation with Charles Ray. So one of the one of the philosophical ideas that's that's a good phrase that you've been engaged with for the last twenty or, or so years is the the difference between or the opposition of the real and the unreal. Is that an interest that's rooted in in an art tradition, say like Trump Loay, or or is it rooted in something else entirely? And I guess the reason I wonder if it might be something else is because there's a particular strain of California-based writing, Joan Didion, Ren Weschler, that, that have written about as well, this, this kind of dichotomy between the real and the unreal. I'm sure that's a bit has a big effect on me. You know, the notion of, of uh, the dialectic has a large effect on me. You know, but, you know, I, as, I, as I get older, I wonder if it's just an illusion, you know, and... and Perhaps the solidity of, you know, someone kept asking me, but why are those figures solid? Why are they solid? Why are they solid? And finally I said, I just want some peace and quiet inside them, you know, for myself, you know, to some, some peace and quiet. And, 
this tension. I think I used the real unreal as 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 a beginning point to find a tension, you know, and it's happened between boundaries. And so, the, the, you know, the boundary between the real and the unreal is interesting to me. You know, the question, is a ghost real or unreal, is more interesting, that tension, than the fact. I mean, my interest never stayed particularly in that point. You know, is it real or is it unreal? That I don't really care about. I care about the tension. Maybe it was an w- easier way to find that space between, especially when I've been thinking more and more temporally, like uh, you know how the curos has arrived. I was making them so they would critically drift away from me, and you know critically drift away from not my responsibility. I take full responsibility for everything and anything I make, but with time, they'll drift away from my ideas. Will they still be around? You know, what what is that time? What is you know, you know, maybe that's outside of the dialectic. Maybe that's outside of this sort of tension between is something real or unreal. You know, there there's a really beautiful passage I read, and I can't remember the philosopher's name. He's from the late 19th century, early 20th century, Eastern European. It was about uh, essay on time and is uh, time related to causality to cause and effect and he said this really beautiful thing he said we find redemption in the ultimate nature of causality because he says good because when the effect dilutes temporally into the universe and is no longer present the cause reverts back to mere probability and in that we find redemption for our sins. You know, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in a thousand years, you know, maybe not in a million years, but eventually, you know, that is it's just causality again. And, you know, it becomes kind of oceanic in a way. You know? It does make me wonder, though, if you remember thinking about the tension between the real and the unreal before you came here, before you came to Los Angeles, or if it, that, that is partly a product of place. I think from youth, you know, so I, I, I came in my youth, but I was also young before I came, and, and my youth and the 60s, some of the different social situations I found myself in, you know, so I, I, I think that tension, I was interested in tension, and psychological tension, physical tension, which perhaps are the same thing. One of the things I've heard from curators about about their interacting with you and their audiences interacting with your objects is that you very, 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 very strongly dislike having a barrier or a physical line of demarcation in a gallery between a potential viewer and your sculpture. No tape on the floor, no stanchions, right, thank you, (laughs) that you loathe that. And I'm actually kind of surprised more artists don't speak up about that. Why is it you hate those barriers so much and make a point of trying to make sure there aren't any around your work? It's a difficult, a difficult problem, and there's a lot of trajectories into that problem. I've spent, I think, my whole career with this idea, how do you get it in the room? How do you get a sculpture in the room? My primary medium is space. A sculptor's primary medium is space. How do you give an object authority to be in the room you know, without you coming in and saying, who put that there? How long that's going to be there? I mean, how do you just 
let it be there? How do you embed a sculpture in space? You know, I've done a lot of work with chairs and tables. They have, it's kind of, it is cheating. They have an authority already. You know, they, they, they already belong in a room. They already have a sense of being. They're very also Heidegger-esque. You know, they have a kind of, you know, uh, quality to them. But I'm try to get my sculptures to be in our space, you know, in front of us, bedded in our shared world's world space. You know, when you put a sculpture in a park up on a pedestal, you solve a problem of, you know, the horse being graffitied. But the horse just is no longer in the park. It's in the park still, but it's also in the clouds. You know, it's in the sky as well then. And it has a different kind of, you know, institutional authority. And so, you know, I, I spend the, you know, great part of my time making the sculpture, looking at it and thinking about it visually. And the stanchions close the space off that I'm interested in. They close the world space off. They demark something ahead of time for you. And they're visual. And perhaps at times, especially today with the museum as a destination, you know, perhaps the stanchions for curators and people today are the least problem. You know, they're revamping all the air conditioning and humidity systems because there's so many people in the museum and our very breath you know, which is life, is destroying work because of the amount of, 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 of people in the museum. You know, one time, it's interesting, I refused stanchions around a piece that was in Venice. The solution was super interesting, and I don't think it worked because the piece, pieces come back from Venice, you know, in really bad shape from how they're displayed and, and shown. But, you know, generally people want to put stanchions around to keep the people off. But in this case, the curator came up with the idea that he put a sign on the wall that said, no photography, no photographs of this sculpture. You could take them of other sculptures, but not of the sculpture in the room that I was in. And I thought, well, what's that going to do? And, well, one of the problems today is selfies, is, you know, people you know, backing up and putting their arm around a figurative sculpture or getting close to a sculpture and bumping into it because their boyfriend or girlfriend or mother is taking a picture of them next to it. So, you know, this big sign, no photography, was in the curator's mind the solution, you know, rather than stanchions. But, you know, the problem is that, you know, it's a deep problem, but, you know, from the beginning, you know, I, I've had this, you know, early on issue, and then, you know, unfortunately, the other solution is guards. Well, we're all guarded, and, you know, you know, you and I are guarded right now, sitting in this room, but there is a obviousness to the hired guard standing in a room telling you not to touch things, you know, which people find as intrusive, in a sense, as the uh, stanchions or the uh, lines on the floor. You know, one of the things about the space in which your sculptures inhabit that you've engaged with for a lot of years is the temptation people have to touch them. Here, with, with Mime, the other sculpture here in Los Angeles, the surface of the pants of the man on the cot are different from, say, the surface of his skin. There is, in that difference, a temptation, at least for me, of, of wanting to not just see that, but because I know pants feel differently than skin, to, to kind of 
you know, I, I didn't do it, but, but to reach out and, and, and touch the sculpture. And we had Jackie Windsor on last week's show, and she talked about, she's kind of the same generation you are, she talked about how that temptation of tactility and touch was important, really important to her in the 70s, and how she was very conscious of that those voids in her minimalist cubes in particular you know, were this kind of doubting Thomas invitation to stick your hand inside and see what happened. So this is something that's interested you in the past with works like Inkbox and Inkline and, and, and Rotating Circle. Was, was that a, a moment of being interested in people's temptation to touch, or is that something you still think about in, in determining the surfaces of your pieces? Well, I think about it, I mean, Inkbox... You know, there was a great, it was almost like a fire where you want to put your hand out and feel it, you know. There was, there was a great kind of kinesthetic with that piece, desire to touch it and put your hand in and feel it. And, and then, you know, of course, you would pull your hand out fast and a wave of ink would go over the edge of the box and go on the floor and then the piece would be, the tension broken and had to be cleaned up for it to work again, you know, you know, because it was, it was about that tension of, of, of wanting to touch. But, you know, there's a lot of things in the world that we want to touch, and we wouldn't dare, you know, and I, I don't, you know, need to go into them. I mean, you can, you know, I mean, the list would really be, be endless. People feel it's their right to touch art. You know, why exactly? I don't know, but they, they get really angry about not being able to touch it. The stainless steel figures I made are the first works that a kid could climb on and not destroy. You know, um, they have to be bucked out. The, you know, they shouldn't, and one shouldn't touch them because, you know, you fingerprint them up and, and they have to be cleaned. The aluminum works like the mime. You know, it's a, it, it has a much more delicate surface because aluminum is a different uh, material and, and a, a fingerprint will actually etch into the aluminum if it's not taken care of right away. So yes, you should look, but you're, you know, and you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to touch something, but you shouldn't, even, you know, with your knuckle. Some people think it's okay to wrap it with your knuckle. But I admit it's, it's an interesting, and, and uh, you know, I love, someone told me once who really understands David Smith's sculpture, they said that if you really want to understand a David Smith, you have to wait till the guard leaves the room and bang on it to feel the steel, that it's made from steel. But yeah, one touch is also different than a million, but where do you draw the line? So is there something about, or was there something about the 1970s where so many sculptors, Sandback, Judd, Windsor, you, ended up being interested in, in that tension, touch, don't touch, repercussions thereof? I'm not sure if there uh, was something in the 70s that did that, or if, if it's also a byproduct of, of, of just tension itself somehow. But, you know, no, I, I, I think that desire to touch is always there. I think the desire to graffiti and wreck and break something is there too in, in people. It's just that we're civilized and we should know how to behave in a museum. So going back to, to, to Inkbox for a moment, so that's a piece made with black ink. Yeah. And, and you told Rob's store a number of years ago that that piece would have been better with green ink. 
but you didn't explain why. Why would Inkbox have been better with green ink than black? I was taking some artistic license when I said that. I think I was also at that time talking about Inkbox with them and the Fall 91, which for people who are unfamiliar with my work is a not a bad figurative sculpture of a lady, but a good sculpture, a great sculpture of a uh, mannequin. It's, but there's a difference. Some people don't understand that it's a, it's anyway. It's a uh, mannequin, a female mannequin, scaled up, thirty percent. An ink box is a black steel box, beveled at the top, painted with black shiny automobile lacquer, leveled and in a room filled with two hundred gallons of black newspaper ink. What I was trying to get at with with uh, Rob Store was every object, every sculpture has both a, a armature and an artifice. And, you know, the question is, for me, about the artifice, how interesting is the trip down to the artifice before you find what you just accept or, you know, the, this kind of unquestioned thing that you're assuming that the sculpture is built around, that you're not questioning it is, in a certain sense, what Dad gave us, you know, metaphorically, that you know, we don't think about. Inkbox did a lot and questioned a lot, and uh, one's viewer's relationship to the object, I think, it pushed. It was kind of a turning point for me. But one thing that I bought, hook, line, and sinker, that I didn't question was the ink, black ink, you know, the black ink, the expressive quality of black ink. So when I said to Bob, it should have been green ink, it would have been better. If it could have been green ink, it would have been better. But it could never have been green ink. The artifice of the black ink was in the foundation of the piece. It had to be black. And then there is the quality that I rejected about the piece that led me to push further and develop more. So finally, you just raised the question of artifice, which brings me to something I wanted to ask about mime. So in, in 2007, Julie Belcove wrote a profile of you for W Magazine, and you told her, quote, what makes an interesting work is what the trips like to the artifice. It's where you finally find the crack in the foundation. Well, you can see the cracks in, in mime. You can see the seams. And I wonder why you chose to make them visible now or with that form or in that sculpt, that particular work? Well, one thing with these works that I've done in the last few years is they're not cast, but they're machined. Like, you know, that's what I said Bale Trucks started at. They're not cast from one block, one big block. Technically, they could be, but what takes Bale Truck eight years would take 80 years because if you divide it onto eight machines, you do it, you know, eight times faster. So same with the figures. So there's something I think about, and one of the reasons I got interested in the machine, in machining them, was because of what I think of as the hand of the machine. You know, and this is an idea that I talk about this in some other places, but if you know how a work was made and start to understand how a work was made, you can understand a lot about a work. So like archaic Greek sculpture wasn't made with a flat chisel. It was made with a punch, like a nail punch. 
Uh, they would begin the, the sculptors in a quarry because the blocks are super heavy to move, so they would remove two-thirds of the marble in the quarry. So you go all the way around a block of stone with a punch, hitting directly 90 degrees into the marble. This first punch would be maybe the size of your wrist, and the sledgehammer, you know, the hammer would be like a sledgehammer, like boom, 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 all the way around. Then you would go down a size, and then down a size, and down a size, and down a size, all the time going three-dimensionally all the way around the block. So one thing that's already happening is you're thinking totally in the round. Right? You're peeling an onion, kind of. The final passes would be, you know, like the size of a nail, you know, like a pinhead, you know, doing the detail. But what's beautiful about this is all the detail emerges simultaneously. And I think I would say that's why an archaic Greek sculpture like a Kuros has a great democracy of parts, of, of surface. Why a lip is equal to a toenail, why an eye is equal to an earlobe, because you're working on it all at once. In the Renaissance and later sculptures, you use a flat chisel. If you notice the Greek sculptures are really flat looking. Well, they painted them too, but they're really flat looking because the punch hitting directly into the marble shatters the crystalline structure. And that's what gives it that kind of dry, chalky look. The Renaissance sculptures are totally veiny and they've been polished and you see these beautiful marble veins and passages of the surface of the marble because they use a flat chisel and hit tangentially off of the marble. That's why Michelangelo didn't have to peel the sculpture, and he said the sculpture's already existing in the marble. I can, you know, just unveil it in a sense. And you see a face emerging in totality, totally rendered. You know, and the rest of the marble block is totally rough because he hasn't gotten to the chest and the neck and the figures yet. Yet, you know, but the face, you know, you couldn't do that in the archaic Greek sculpture because you have to go down a size of, you know, you can't get to that kind of detail until you're also working on the toe and the nose and the nipple and the knee, and it's much more kind of, you know, a manifold of, of, of a relationship of parts kind of than the, you know, the Greek sculpture is uh, you know, totally, or the, the Renaissance sculpture preconceived in, in a sense as pre-existing in the block. So I had a great interest in our time and you know, one of the tooling methods is you know, I started looking at machine parts for other sculptures that I was doing and they have a, you know, the machine has a beautiful hand and it also goes down in bits as it's getting to finer and finer detail and it has a different focus than, than we have. So when I would make a figurative sculpture like young man or sleeping woman or shoe tie, they're made from clay initially, scans, body molds, all these parts go into the making. Then you know they get uh, into a hard material and they're made by hand. Uh, they go in and out, they're modeled traditionally and carved traditionally. One sculpture might have a clay version, a hard a four-ton version, I could say, you know, four-ton's like a super plaster might be scanned, go back into the computer, be machined in foam, then clay put back over that foam, then it's sculpted by hand again for a year, on and on and on to the final pattern could be 
scanned and then uh, machine file made and then machined. I'm interested in the focus of the machine. But then after that, machining is done. You can get much more detail by hand than the machine is capable of because of the size of the bit. But I like the focus that that bit brings. Then when you start putting it together, you can then go back into the machined part by hand with files. You know, so you have a kind of hybrid object in the end, but a different kind of focus, different kind of texture than you would have. So when I went to MIME and I was working on MIME, MIME is a very old sculpture in this series, but it was done the same time Sleeping Woman was done. And again, the, the listeners who don't know Sleeping Woman, it's, I don't know, three tons or something of a homeless lady asleep on a bench. And she's asleep the way a mountain sleeps. She's unwakeable. She's in the sleep where we're all equal, where we all find an equality, um, where we, we all meet. Um, she's asleep in the geological sense of sleep. Counterpart to that was more how I sleep. It's like I'm you know, faking it, not really asleep. And so initially I was thinking of this show called Between Two Sleepers and it, that changed because I finished Sleeping Woman much sooner. And I was working on Mime for a number of years and Mime is a mime who's on an army cot maybe between performances. Maybe he's asleep or maybe he's miming sleep. A mime has a, what a mime calls suspension. And you know, imagine watching Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. As soon as the movie starts, they're almost being pulled up by strings. But these strings are internal. There's not a puppeteer. They're their own puppeteer. But you know how Chaplin kind of goes up and starts to move down the street, or Keaton animates himself. So my mime is asleep on this cot, and there's a question, is he miming sleep or really asleep? And, you know, over the years, looking at the pattern, thinking about the pattern, I kept being distant from this kind of animation of the mime because it always became a kind of surreal image of a mime asleep on this cot. And I always knew where I was in relationship to this. So I said, well, what this, you know, and then I, I sent it out, I finished the pattern and brought it to Japan and was having it, or am having it carved in wood. And I thought the craft of carving would somehow animate it and bring it out of surrealism and bring a kind of tension to the surface that the mime has running electrically through his whole body, that I would find this relationship there. Well, it takes like three or four years to carve this. And, and then in the meantime, I was doing all this machining and not another version, but another sculpture, I decided to try to machine it. And I wanted to machine it in aluminum. Again, now I'm kind of jumping around, but remember, we're using the parts on many machines. Stainless steel, when I get the parts back, I weld them together, and then I buff out the welds. With the mime, like the hand of the woodworker, I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave the sculpture as machined. I wanted 
and this was a way to deal with the edges. Sculpture always has an issue with its edges. You know where a sculpture begins and ends, what its boundaries are. I, in this hand of the machine I'm talking about here, it's like, and again for the listeners, it's from a photographic image, but it's like looking at a DVD. It throws lights around, light around in a peculiar way. It has a kind of, art, you know, artifact surface like the DVD does of the bit running over the surface. So I have, I broke the mime down to these different parts. If I was to weld it back together, you know, then you'd have to fake the machining back into it, and I didn't want to do that. So I really thought about where those seams might be, and then they became philosophically a part of the sculpture, a part of the assembledness, a part of the tension and the artifice of the mime, miming, if you will. You know, so they're, they're, they're really important, the seams, as is the, the actual surface. And if you look close, those form then boundaries of machine paths. You, 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 there's a lot of thought, and I wanted the sculpture to incorporate all of this to accumulate like a snowball rolling down a hill, all of these different aspects of thought of its own making, in a sense. So there's different machine paths. If you don't think out the machine path, the machine hits itself, hits its own work, and it's not that hard to break a $50,000 chuck. The company machining for me, that's their responsibility. They'll have to cover that. I don't have to cover that, but, you know, you, 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 you know, so these objects embody all of my thought. They embody a kind of technology of our moment, of our time. And so these machines surface, not only in my mind, in, in bed light and throw light around, but it, you know, not just for no effect, but to the effect of the electricness of the mime, miming. You know? Everybody hates mimes. I dislike mimes. We all dislike mimes. We're irritated by mimes. But you can think of them as a liberated art form. You know, if you want to do something where the hipsters won't fall into mime, you know, it, it has a beautiful potential for some room, some peace and quiet around it, some freedom. You know, so I have worked with some mimes over the years on this sculpture, and you know, had to call them back and you know look at different things about miming, you know, for making of the sculpture and have found a great affection and respect for their art. You know, it's really quite complicated and kind of philosophical and very, very profound that in relationship of the body to both culture and space. Charles Ray, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks. Now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, Yoko Ono, One Woman Show, 1960 to 1971. Experience Yoko Ono's art, her concepts, performances, films, and a selection of participatory pieces in the first exhibition at MoMA dedicated solely to the artist's work. Find out more at moma.org and plan your visit today. Welcome back. Next, we'll hear from critic and author Ben Davis. He'll be giving a keynote address at the upcoming Walker Art Center Conference, Superscript, Arts Journalism and Criticism in a Digital Age. It runs from May 28th to May 30th in Minneapolis, and you can follow it online at walkerart.org superscript. 
Davis and I spoke in 2013, just after Haymarket Books published 9.5 Theses on Art and Class, Davis's book in which he looked at questions of labor, class, and politics in the contemporary art scene. Ben Davis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey there, Tyler. Early in the book, you, you describe what got you started along toward the thoughts that you express in the book. What got you started toward thinking about compiling this group of essays into, into a single place, into a book that held together as a whole? Well, I think the book became more of a whole as I, as I worked on it. The book is a collection of, of essays, some new, some are revised versions of things I've written before. And as I was, uh, I think always as I was writing, I, there was this theme running through things I had been writing about, about class. But I don't know that that was always on the surface of the essays because being a writer, you're probably the same. I, I don't really like to repeat myself. So you're always looking for new ways to say things, new ways to get at problems. And as I thought about compiling things I'd written, I did realize that there was a pretty consistent underlying theoretical idea or idea that informed the way I approached a lot of different problems. And so the book became a process of kind of bringing that idea to the surface in a number of different things or bringing together things I'd written and, and, and organizing them around this kind of idea, which was best expressed in an essay that's not in the book or is, is, is in the book in a form that's so revised that you can't even recognize it. An essay called Art Class that I wrote for Artnet magazine years ago now with this sort of idea about how artists relate to class was the was the most whole articulation of that and then that became the pamphlet 9.5 theses on art and class which became the the title of this book there are a number of threads that run throughout the book but the most significant one is the question of class so probably at the very top i should ask you to define class as you think about it in this book yeah well i think that's a really good way to phrase the question tyler because well i'm a little bit worried that some people will be disappointed by the book in a way i think that when people hear that when I say to people I, that I've written a book about about art and class, I think what people hear, what they really want to hear in some way is is about art and the way that art relates to to wealth and poverty. And I think there's a lot of interesting things to be said about that, but a lot of them are fairly obvious. I think it's the the effect of money on art is 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 evident. Some of the sort of the, the struggle it is to be an artist is also something that's on people's mind and, and they talk about. But that's not exactly the way I frame the problem of class in the book. I, I guess I just say that I think that in the common way that people talk about class, there are a lot of different contradictory things going on. You know, it's in, in some sense we talk about class as being, yeah, like how well you're doing, how much money you make. And again, I think that's that's extremely important. But there's another way to think about it, which comes to me through Marx's idea of class, uh, Marx's theory, which is really about how one relates to one's labor and how one's labor relates to the economy. And so, you know, the first essay in the book is kind of a matter of, of defining how I think about class and then showing how artists relate to those ideas. And so my provocation, I guess, in the book is that I think that the best way to think about 
artists and their labor is to define them as what we call middle class because they have a very specific relationship to their own labor, which is that they have ownership over the, uh, they have an unusual amount of say in what in the conditions of their own output. And it's something very different than not just other workers like like a barista or a factory worker or an office worker, but, you know, other creative laborers who have to, you know, they work to the specifications of 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 a contract or, or a boss who tells them, you know, the kind of creative project they want to do. And I, I really think the best way to think about contemporary art is to, to, to think about it in terms of a form of labor and a way that people relate to their labor. And to a certain extent, a lot of the essays in the book are drawing out that idea and showing how that clarifies different problems, different ways people think about art. And in fact, right at the start of the book, you note that you think artists themselves have trouble finding and using the language either in their work as artists or not in their work as artists, you know, as, as citizens of addressing the, their own economic position in today's economy. Why do you, you know, and, and, and this is something that artists, especially in New York, have have kind of dealt with through through leagues and unions and groups for years. And I guess there's never been a resolution, if you will. There's never been kind of a dominant organization, an organization, or what be it be a union or something else that has coalesced and continued. So why is it? Do you think that artists have trouble addressing their economic position in today's economy? Well, I think there are a lot of different reasons, but I guess just one that I'd highlight and one that I think is useful is just to say that. To a certain extent, the identity of artist is almost kind of mythical, you know? It's it's like the way politicians talk about only talk about the middle class, you know, everyone's middle middle class. We're fighting for the middle class and and so on. And when in fact, you know, I think 80% of Americans work in non-supervisory positions and are really what we'd call working class in a technical sense. So I think that, you know, for most, for artists, that's an aspirational identity. You know, people go through art school and they identify as an artist. You know, you ask someone what they do and they say, I'm an artist. And which means they have the aspiration to eventually make money off of their creativity, to be able to do what they love creatively or do what they're interested in creatively. And that's also their profession, inspired to have an aspiration between an overlap between their their aspirations, their creative aspirations and their vocation and their professional vocation. So that's how people identify. It's a very powerful way of identifying. I think a lot of people want to be an artist because they're escaping other forms of other kinds of jobs that are less that are less appealing to them but the reality is that very few it's it's mainly a sort of an illusory kind of thing very few people actually make their money as professional creative artists it's it's almost like winning the lottery so in the kind of very you know on the surface in terms of the fact that so many people identify as artists but so few people make actually are artists professionally, you have a kind of a little bit of ideological confusion about about what's actually going on. And I think that leads to a lot of, you know, organizational confusions, uh, confusion, strange kinds of debates that take all kinds of weird turns and, and, and confuse what's really at stake and what's going on. You tie that situation to the question, what is art for, which is maybe one of the er questions of the book. So what is, what is art? What are artists for? 
and how do they join or engage society? You, you, you do kind of come to a certain, a very specific idea about whether it's more effective for artists to engage economic condition through their work or as organizers or participants in, in political movements. Well, those are different questions. I mean, I think the question of what is art for is a little bit of a different question about than how artists can be most effective politically and actually even for their own interests and ends. And actually one of the other themes of the book is really trying to untie those two questions, right? Untie the question of the politics of art from the question of the practice of art. But you are fairly clear that you think that the best path to political change is is not through a painting, it's through organizing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not totally dismissive of of what you call political art. I mean, I think it's good. I'm I'm dismissive of the attempt to turn a political conversation into an artistic one, which is I don't think that's healthy for for art. I think that leads to artistic questions of taste essentially taking on this kind of really shrill tone of displaced political political righteousness. And at the same time, I don't think it's good for politics because, you know, their politics has separate questions. You know, some of them aren't very elegant. Anyone who's ever been in a room trying to figure out, you know, how to organize a protest or a picket or a speak out or something will know that they're, it's, it's not a necessarily aesthetically pleasing process. So I just think they're separate questions. I think it's most healthy to, to, to think about them, theorize them as separate questions, and 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 start from there. And then once you've started from there, then you can ask the question of, you know, whether a, a painting uh, with political themes adds to a, a larger latent political discussion that makes things that I don't know makes makes ideas that you agree with seem cool or interesting in a way that 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 has some positive effect. It, it seems that you mostly come down on the side that art is not, that art objects are not massively effective at motivating political change. Is that fair to say? Yes. I think that I would say that, and I don't know that that's, that's necessarily a damning critique of them, unless you're staking all your hopes on some form of revelatory political art. I certainly agree with that in terms of short-term political change, but I wonder if you think that it might be different when you look at kind of longer term, say 20, 40, 80 years out change of whether you think art can play a meaningful role in initiating or furthering significant social or political change. Absolutely. And I would agree with you well, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but I, I don't think that's particularly, that's not a process I talk about particularly in this book, because I think, you know, I'm, there are like two or three problems that I come back to a lot in the book. And yeah, like I said, I think you should start with the idea that in the immediate term, art is not a political strategy. However, I do, yeah, I do think that, I guess that's what I was trying to say um, a second ago, is that I do think in terms of kind of building a larger kind of imagery of of ideas yeah art's going to be very important but what will be really what i do think is important to sort of acknowledge is that it will be political changes and political movements that are built that will sort of determine that that art becomes part of the cultural imaginary so an example i always think of is frida kahlo right who who 
you know, now we think of as a very great artist was in, in her lifetime in a lot of ways overshadowed by her husband, Diego Rivera. But, you know, really it's the, the feminist movement in, in the sixties and the seventies that, that, that created the conditions where suddenly her form of self-portraiture and like personal, the way she brought a personal narrative into her art could, could then be rediscovered as an icon, a certain form of political consciousness. And of course, she's part of that. I think I've written about her and about how I think that, you know, she's an active participant in that process, how she clearly was creating a myth that could, had space in it to be appropriated in that sort of way. But nevertheless, had there never been that larger movement, those changes in society, we wouldn't think about it. We certainly wouldn't think about that imagery in the same way. The other example that that always comes to mind when I think of the way in which art has been effective in terms of long-term political or social impact is Dada, which was really the world's first anti-war movement and was certainly by any definition the world's first multinational anti-war movement. And was Dada effective at stopping World War I or, or impacting the conduct of the war? Not in the tiniest bit, but it's impossible to imagine America's anti-Vietnam War movement and, and many of its techniques without Dada. Yeah, well, I think I say, I don't think I use exactly the example of Dada, but I do, I do think that I talk about some similar things in the chapter of my book where I talk about political art and specifically, and use some examples like Picasso's Guernica and Tatlin's Monument to Third International. And I do say almost exactly what you just said, which is that I think our vocabulary, our understanding of political history would be poorer without those images. But however, if you were at the time and someone was proposing to you that we were going to go to down to Cabaret Voltaire and, and stop the war, I think you would be right to to say that that was to argue to argue that that might not be the most effective short-term strategy. That's in chapter three, What Good is Political Art in Times Like These? It's one of the best chapters in the book. My guest is Ben Davis. We'll be right back after a break. And I'm back with Ben Davis. You know that there's a dichotomy between art being a collective labor, art is necessarily, of course, informed by the culture around it, and between the way in which the extremely dominant way of the moment of presenting art is to focus on a few branded stars more than probably anywhere on the planet um, in Chelsea. And, and almost as if to, 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 to prove the point, you, you, you kind of focus on how that has happened with a number of artists, particularly Jeff Koons. Why is this dichotomy something of a problem, if that's the right word? What, what about that dichotomy interests you? Art is a very interesting form and when I say art, I'm now speaking specifically of visual art. And I think that's an important distinction to make because part of the class argument in my book, the argument about class, is that there's something particularly individualistic about the mode of production of the visual arts. It's particularly middle class, more so than you know filmmaking or video game design or other things like that. All of which take a village. Exactly. They take a village. Well, I mean, and art does too in a, in, in a way, but, you know, you're drawing on it, you're drawing on all sorts of conversations and, and, and other kinds of things. But I, I do think that it, that it does have this particularly kind of, I mean, this is why people, people in some ways sacrifice better paying careers in order to become artists is because you have your say in it, your individual say in it. 
So that's what I'd say about the problem of individual versus the collective. I think there's a sort of a false debate that gets trotted out that, that the, because of the very eccentric character of the visual arts, that it is specifically organized around art stars and their individual production, that therefore there's something particularly radical or progressive about collective forms of, of art production. And there certainly can be, you know, you look at like the Guerrilla Girls or or um, Critical Art Ensemble or, or or groups like that, where there's clearly people are using banding together in collectives to do really interesting things for very specific tactical reasons. But I don't think there's anything inherently more valuable or radical about collective labor. And again, that's another, because in the end, you're still just, well, for two reasons, because in the end, I actually think artistic forms of of art collectives are really just are, are really still remain within that paradigm you talked about is they're branded things instead of a single person it's a couple people getting together to make a, a a branded kind of thing so it's still within that sort of paradigm and two because i think that yeah i mean i think that there's this very eccentric thing about visual art that it's the the individual presence is particularly exaggerated in it and that's not wholly negative in my assessment that that's again that's part of what people like about it and most creative production in a consumer market capitalist economy is produced by anonymous people so there's this kind of danger of missing that you know by by rejecting the idea of the art star which has all kinds of ugly things about it to to celebrating the idea of having someone you know, of, of art that's just sort of um, faceless and uh, reduced to a kind of anonymous object. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.